We're looking through Acts this semester, and um, where we are in the book is uh, we're at Acts 4, and what's just happened, if you're just showing up, is Jesus has started the church through his apostles. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he called his apostles together and said, I'm giving you all the Holy Spirit for the purpose of starting the church and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Pentecost has happened, all these people have come to faith, churches break out everywhere, uh, or beginning to break out. And then in Acts 3, we actually have the first apostle, Peter, performing the first miracle from the apostles. And where we are in chapter 4, we talked about that last week, where we are in chapter 4 is how the leaders in the community are responding to that moment. So that's what we're going to read tonight. We're going to read the first 22 verses of Acts 4. This is the word of the Lord. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the, men, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they, confessed with, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we can't but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, as we consider this text, as we see the way your followers so boldly proclaim your name, uh, we long for that boldness. We wish it was true of us. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit would attend to your word, would convince us of its truth, that our world would be turned upside down, that we would find that there is joy in the resurrection of Jesus, that he lives, that he lives now to intercede for us, and that that changes everything. Jesus, please be with us. Jesus, please teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you don't know me, it doesn't take long to be around me to find that I kind of fancy myself a connoisseur of, program, of 
network television programming. It's kind of it's one of the things I have elite tastes in, if you will. Um, and if you two are an amateur kind of connoisseur of program television, you might have found that Mondays this fall are terrible. They're just <coughs> abysmal. Has anybody tried to watch the event yet? Like, <coughs> it's terrible. What it is is people trying to capture the lost phenomenon and making a really crappy, cheap TV show and trying to get the whole lost mojo, and they've lost it. They don't have it. And um, so this past Monday night, <laughs> do what? Yeah. Very pun. It's kind of a joke dads would make or something. Um, or Brian Miesmer. <laughs> Sorry. That was out loud. If you come to RUF, I won't make fun of you. Don't worry. Just make fun of Brian. Um, but what I found... Now we're really getting far afield. Um, what I found myself doing this past Monday, because the programming's been so horrible this fall, I'm disappointed in the networks. I'm worried about what NBC's going to do. They fire their executive. But anyways, um, what do you do when network television's terrible? You go to your DVR, and you see, is there any, like, old go-tos? And the great thing about the fall is what you can find on your DVR, <coughs> or at least the DVR at the Woodhouse, is every Alabama game that's been played thus far. And, of course, this past weekend was a good weekend for the University of Alabama. I'm from Alabama. I love Alabama. I hope South Carolina does well in every other game except for your game this Saturday. I'm sorry. I hope you come back to RUF. Um, so I turn on the Alabama-Florida game. It's beautiful. It's completely awesome. The experience of watching it on DVR when you know the outcome is so much more emotionally settling, you know? been kind of wondering about what's going on. And that's actually the principle I want to talk about tonight, is that when you know the end, who you are in the midst of something completely changes. Elizabeth walked in and said, are you gloating over the Alabama game? And that's absolutely what I was doing. I was not fretting. I was not worrying. I was not getting frustrated with the play calling. I was enjoying every minute, even the mistakes I wasn't worried about, because when you know the end, it completely changes who you are when you're in the middle of things. And in RUF, what I hope we do often is force you to think about death, um, the reality of death. We live in a world in which, in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do most of the time is distract ourselves from struggling from, with harder questions. And um, I want this to be a place, honestly, where sometimes you come and you're forced to just think about the end. And do that for two reasons. Because, a, first of all, because... It's healthy for everybody to think about that, whether you're a believer or not, whether or not you trust in Jesus. It's healthy for everybody to think about it because it informs and it shapes who you are now and what you're going to do now. Because, for instance, if you believe at death that that's it, that this world is all there is, and everything ends at that moment, then you're wasting your time at RUF right now, right? Because you have anywhere from one hour to 80 years to get everything you can out of this life, and then it's over. It greatly affects how you live and who you are now. Uh, it greatly affects that depending on how you believe things end. But, right, if this time is not all there is and there's more beyond the end, that also changes how you live now. It also forces us to deal with reality. It pulls us out of our distractions, right, for a couple of minutes to ponder death. When you start to think about death, right, all of a sudden, your body image and your character on Halo 
mean a lot less, right? <laughs> Things get serious, and all the dross and all the distractions fade away into the background for a little bit, and that's healthy for all of us, not just, in, not just every now and then, but probably over the long term. And what I want us to see tonight, because this is what this passage is dealing with, is dealing with the end. It's dealing with the resurrection. It's dealing with these guys walking around and saying, we saw somebody who was dead alive again. And that changes everything. The truth of the resurrection changes everything, everything. The way one scholar said it, catch the rhetoric here, if the resurrection really took place, then nothing else matters. Nothing else in your life no other fact, no other truth, no other objective thing that's going on in your life can matter near as much as the resurrection if it really happens. That is the fundamental historical fact you have to deal with if the resurrection really happened. It's the most important thing. But he also says this, if the resurrection didn't happen, then actually kind of nothing else really matters. What he's saying is if the resurrection didn't happen, enjoy your distractions because that's all you have. Nothing matters. The way one pastor said it is, when you consider who Jesus is, here's what the secondary question is. What do you think about his teaching? That's the secondary question. That's not the primary question. The first question you have to deal with when you think about Jesus is, did he rise again from the dead? Because if he didn't, don't waste your time with this teaching. It's crazy. If he did rise from the dead, you have to deal with everything he said. The first question is, do you believe the resurrection occurred? Because if you don't believe it did, don't waste your time with his teaching. There's nothing to be learned from it. The guy's crazy. If he did raise, if he did rise again from the dead, you can't walk into his teaching anymore and just decide what you like and you don't like. You have to deal with it on a serious fundamental level because this guy conquered death. The resurrection changes every way we think about the world, every way we think about ourselves, every way we think about reality. And what I want to do tonight because this is what's going on in this passage, is considered the proof of the resurrection, because what Peter says they're doing is, we're just walking around and talking about the guy who we saw resurrected, what we saw and what we heard, right? So I want to talk about the proof of the resurrection, and then why it's a problem, why the resurrection is a massive problem for the way this world works. And then lastly, what the resurrection, how it gives us power. So the first thing is the proof of the resurrection, even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the proof of the resurrection is absolutely important. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through, 7, uh, 12 through 19. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you, some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if he hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because of what we testified about God, that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise. If that's true, <coughs> that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, this, if in this life only we have, if all we've done is hoped in Christ, then we're of all people most to be pitied. Here's what Paul's saying. If the resurrection didn't happen, Christians are the biggest idiots and actually the most pitiful people ever. Those are Paul's words. See, it's not simply sufficient to think that he just died for our sins. Because if he died but doesn't have power over death, 
then if he doesn't have power over death for himself, he doesn't have power over death for you. You're not redeemed, you're not forgiven, then this is a waste of time. It's not simply the fact that he died that gives us life. It's also his resurrection. And it's precisely the resurrection that's actually in contention here. That's what's creating the uproar. It's actually not the miracle. It's the name by which the miracle is done. Verse 2, all, all these people, are their apostles are speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. What they're upset about is the fact that they're teaching the resurrection. Peter's proclaiming that the man they killed is now alive. And that's why the question is not, how did you do this miracle, stop doing miracles? The question is, what's the power behind this miracle? By what name did you perform this miracle? And just like the apostles always say, they never take credit for the miracles, they always say, Jesus did this. By Jesus' name. And if Jesus did it, then he can't be dead. Miracles are testimonies to the fact that Jesus is still alive when the apostles do miracles. And so the question then is, how can we trust that our king's alive? And I want to give you kind of a couple of points that help us really really kind of confirm in your heart and in your mind that this historically happened. And the first thing to point to is actually the lives of the apostles themselves, right? Because it's not long ago, just a few weeks ago in their lives, that they were so timid that when... Okay, who is Jesus? He was their Bible study small group leader that taught a small group every day with them for three years. They've been with him for three years. And he's arrested and he's killed. And the guys who are in a small group for three years disassociate with him. That's how scared out of their minds are. Now look what's happening right here. Two months later, less than two months after that event, Peter is standing in front of the most important people and he's throwing down. He's throwing down. How does somebody go from being that weak to someone that's loved them so well and been so loyal to them, from being that weak to this strong in a matter of weeks? If it weren't for the fact that he saw his king die and then he touched the risen Lord and felt his scars and saw him and dined with him. Nobody gets that bold that fast unless they saw the resurrected Christ. <coughs> People don't undergo persecution or die for something that they know to be a lie. That doesn't happen. In 1 Corinthians fifteen six, Paul tells us that there are at least 500 men who were witnesses who saw Jesus after the resurrection. Most of those people will be arrested, persecuted, and killed because they trust in Jesus and because they talk about the resurrected Lord. Does anybody, especially a large group of people, willingly allow themselves to be persecuted and killed for something they absolutely know is a lie? Absolutely not. They only allow themselves to be persecuted if they touched Jesus and if they saw the resurrected Lord, if they knew with 100% that the resurrected Lord lives. They are... If, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then all the people who had been following him, they, waited for, they would have waited for three days and then blown off everything he said because it was crazy and it all hinged on him doing what he said he would do, which is rise again in three days. You blow off a leader when he tells you, I'm going to rise again from the dead, and then he doesn't. That's not what they do. They don't blow him off. They go and die for that. 
because they saw him. Nobody dies for something that they know for a fact is a lie. But not only that, and this logic's used elsewhere in Acts, actually in Acts 5, movements die when their leaders die. In Acts 5, they've, they arrest the apostles and um, they're considering what to do and this one religious leader, Gamaliel, stands up and he says, he recounts all these historical instances of like, remember when this guy started this cult and he died and the cult just fell apart? And remember when this guy started a cult and he died and the cult just fell apart? And he said, that's what will happen here. When a movement's leader dies, the movement loses steam. Especially, right, if the movement's identity is built into that specific leader. There's no replacement for him. He claims something unique like being the son of God, right, or the Messiah. When that person dies, the movement dies. But not only did that movement not die, when Jesus died and rose again, it escalated. People are coming to trust in Jesus faster and in larger numbers after his resurrection than at any time during his ministry. There's more numerical success to gospel ministry post-resurrection when the people who saw Jesus and touched his scars told everyone about the resurrected Lord. There's more success then than at any point when Jesus, who is God himself, preaches. The reason why is because the resurrection proved everything he said was true. Another interesting detail that I think gives credibility to the reality of the resurrection is you remember in Matthew 28, the first witnesses to the resurrected Lord are two women. In that culture, the testimony of women was not even allowed in court. They were treated like children. It's bad. We don't affirm that. This is the way that culture was shaped at that time. If you were constructing a hoax, if you were constructing a lie to mislead people, here's what the last thing you would ever do is. The last thing you would do is get the least credible witnesses and say, listen to them. And yet, that's exactly what happens here. It doesn't make sense unless it's actually true. And lastly, another reason we can trust the resurrection occurs is because the book of Acts is about the chaos that starts across Jerusalem and across the Middle East because these people are talking about the resurrection. The religious people are upset, the political people are upset, even the economic leaders are upset about what's going on because these people are talking about the resurrected Jesus it's a furor. All they had to do to prove everything Jesus said was a lie was produce a body. If the leaders just wanted to just quell the rebellion and quell the unrest, all they had to do is open up the grave and say, look, here are Jesus' bones. It's not that hard to disprove the resurrection. And they had every incentive and every ounce of ability, financially, politically, physically, to prove that there were bones in the tomb. And they didn't do it. Because there weren't any bones. And of course, all these reasons to believe in the resurrection are actually kind of supplementary reasons because the main reason we believe in the resurrection is the main reason you as a kid believe that Jesus loves you. It's because the Bible tells us so. Jesus foretold it. We have a picture of him resurrected and the apostles confirm it all throughout the rest of Scripture. I hope that gives you confidence in the proof of the resurrection. You've got to deal with the fact that this guy walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago. And it creates a problem. It creates a problem in this context, but it creates a problem for the world in general because it's, it's precisely that 
the fact that Peter's speaking so boldly about the resurrection that's frustrating these leaders so much. It's not even the miracle that takes place. The leader, leaders actually recognize that the miracle happens. And they ask, how did you do this? Later they recognize that a notable, son, a notable sign had been done before everyone. They say, it's evident. We can't prove this didn't happen. This definitely happened. But what the leaders say is, they don't say, you can't perform miracles anymore. That's creating chaos. That's not what they say. They don't care about the miracles. They say, you can't proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. Verse 2 tells us, it's, again, it's the talk about Jesus being resurrected that's a problem. Now, why is that a problem? First thing, we have to understand who the people are that are against the apostles here. And the text gives us a real extensive list. The priests, who are the local pastors, they're the local clergy. The temple guard, who work in the temple. The Sadducees, who are the kind of the new wealth of the community at that time. They don't believe in the afterlife. And then we're told the rulers and the elders, what those men are, the important kind of political and influential men of the culture. You know how in every town you live in, there are those family names that carry a lot of weight. That's who these people are, the heads of those kinds of families. The scribes are the seminary professors. And then the high priestly, fa- the high priestly family, Annas, who is the high priest, he's the Pope of Israel, for lack of a better word, right? And then um, Caiaphas, who's his father-in-law, who had been the high priest beforehand. And then John, this is not John the Apostle, this is John and Alexander, other members of the priestly family. These were the most important people with the most power. Why is the resurrection a problem for them? They're most powerful economically, politically, and religiously. This is why. Because the reality of the fact that Jesus conquered death and that all of those who trust in him, they're forgiven, you're made righteous, and you have life, and you will join him in the resurrection. If death no longer has the final word and there's a power that conquers sin and conquers conquers its consequences, namely death, If that power exists, and if because you are in Jesus, you have it, you have nothing to fear. And there's nothing more disruptive to the power structures of the world than fearless people. If you trust in something that gives life, then there's no fear in life or in death. It erases all fear, even the fear of those who can take your life. And do you see how scary it is to rulers to have a group of people who are completely fearless now? It's the resurrection that makes them fearless. Two months ago, Peter was so scared out of his mind. This is actually who confronts him in Matthew 26. A servant girl. A servant girl. An eight-year-old little girl comes up and says, Are you with him? And Peter is scared out of his mind and denies Jesus to a servant girl. He's standing in front of the most important people two months later, and he's not only not threatened by them, he's telling them off big time. He's quoting Psalm 18, and he's saying, not only are you wrong, y'all were the builders. Y'all were the people responsible for leading God's people into holiness and being a blessing to the world and carrying the message of grace and the greatness of God's name. Y'all were the builders. And here's what happened when the cornerstone came along, the cornerstone on which God was going to redeem everything. You killed him. The dude went from being scared to death of an eight-year-old girl to telling off the most important people. The resurrection creates a big problem for the world. What can anybody take from you if the resurrection's yours? 
and this is fundamental to a lot of Jesus' teaching, when he talks about turning the cheek, right? <coughs> Giving to people who have already taken a lot from you, loving your enemies. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man gathered as much as he could in this life, and yet Lazarus, the poor man, he was actually rich in his death. The poor, the mourning, the meek, the persecuted in this life are the blessed people because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The resurrection is dangerous because it makes fearless people. It makes people who are no longer governed by the need to find approval or acceptance, right? Or they're governed by the need to find material express or governed by the need to become physically beautiful or have someone say they're beautiful. And all the world's power structures are actually built and driven by fear, right? The whole, this is what Steve Jobs is great at. I'm scared to death of what my life will be without an iPad, right? Jesus in his sanctification, his pursuit of my own sanctification has withheld an iPad from me. But this is what all marketing and all the economy is based on. They want to make you think you've got to have something, be afraid of not having it, right? Everything, even cool, independent, hipster people, yes, Y'all are getting manipulated by marketers too. I'm sorry, none of us are really independent or that strong or that free. Everyone's, everything, economically speaking, is telling us, you've got to have this, you've got to have this. Be afraid of not having it, right? Political structures are built around the fact that they hope you fear punishment, right? Even social structures, social groupings, from things as big as a group like RUF to as small as your roommates and your close group of friends, they're built on the need to find acceptance and identity in this world. They're built on the fear of loneliness. And the resurrection turns that all upside down. It removes all fear. And so that all of a sudden, instead of a need to have things, then the way we handle our money is actually, instead of the need to have things, we're so not afraid anymore that we just become generous. We handle ourselves professionally and financially. We become generous people with character. It's not afraid of not having stuff. The way we handle it, we actually still respect governing authorities, but not because we're afraid, but actually because we love our Father and we wish people to see that His people have respect. Within our social structures, with our friends, we love sacrificially, and they treat us horribly, and they get upset with us for unjust reasons, and it's painful, but all of a sudden we're not relating to our friends because we're afraid of being lonely but we're relating to our friends because we seek to be a blessing. It's not about me anymore. Within your friendships, it becomes about them. The resurrection is a huge problem to everyone who thinks the world runs by. What are you afraid you're not going to have? And that's why Peter's conclusion is, there is salvation in no one by no other name. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone is the Lord of life. The only thing worth fearing is him, and when you turn to him, you find out he's full of mercy and steadfast love. So here's what this means. If y'all buy into this Jesus thing, expect opposition. We're Americans, we think we're supposed to be successful at everything, and that, that un, is actually unhealthy the way it leaks into the way we think about ministry sometimes. If you're proclaiming Christ, there's going to be opposition. If you're reflecting Christ, there's going to be opposition. If you're living for the resurrection, the world will not like you. And see, Acts 4.12 is, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And people think there's opposition to Christianity because 
this is one of those narrow claims that Christianity makes, right? One of those real narrow, arrogant things. There's only one way. This is it. You have to think this way or else. And people think it's the exclusivity of Christianity. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you you have that yourself. It's the exclusivity of these claims, that it's only this way that there is salvation. That's not why there's opposition to Christianity, because that's actually not, not a very sophisticated argument. The argument Christianity is so arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way. It's arrogant to convert people to a very specific way of thinking, right? That's the complaint. Okay, that statement is what it condemns. Okay? It's a way of thinking that's trying to convert people to a specific way of thinking. The reality is, everybody believes something. The question is not, is it exclusive or not? Because every fact you believe is exclusive. It is going to offend someone. Everybody's got to believe something. The question is not, is it narrow, is it exclusive? The question is, is it true? The opposition doesn't come from the narrowness of the claim that we can only be saved in Jesus. The opposition comes from the fact that when we're left to our sin nature, we hate grace and we love fear. Because grace turns the world upside down, and you know what fear does? Fear gives us a sense of control and that the world's going to operate in an orderly fashion, right? The Southern Miss game. Remember the whole ticket fiasco? They said if you get a student ticket and you don't use it, you forfeit your right to have tickets for the rest of the semester. Y'all remember this? Then like, what, 1,200, 2,000 students didn't use their tickets for the Southern Miss game? And all of a sudden, USC realizes, well, maybe it was a little stiff policy. And what did they do? They forget, they forgave, maybe some of y'all. 2,000 students. Every person I asked about that was furious because we hate grace. Because we did it right, and bad people should get the punishment they deserve. Right? There's no... It gives us a sense of control. And grace undoes our sense of control because it says anybody can be forgiven. Right? We love fear. We want people... We think, you know what? This world's going to operate if everyone's afraid. If you're afraid you won't get to go to the next football game, then you will always operate within the rules. See, we love fear. It makes us feel like the world's in control, right? And the, the resurrection comes along and it screams grace and it removes fear because it says there is no condemnation for any kind of person that is in Christ. John finishes his gospel. These words are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that simply by believing you will have life. The prospect of sin freely forgiven and life freely given you can expect opposition to, that, opposition to that, and you can especially expect opposition to that from religious people. Because what religious people hate is they hate the prospect of rule breakers being shown mercy. Talking about the resurrection is going to create problems. But it gives us power. And that's what I want to talk about lastly. What are the practical consequences of living as if this is true? Of believing in the resurrected Jesus? And the first thing we already commented on, the first thing is boldness. It doesn't simply remove fear. It also engenders, it creates boldness. The uh, the authorities even remark on Peter, right? Verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter or John and perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. The Greek here is actually kind of interesting. The words for uneducated and common men are actually agrammatical. That's the word for uh, uneducated. And then the word for common is actually idiotai. 
What they're saying is these men, this is the Greek, are uneducated idiots. And they're astonished because these people are nobodies. And this is a nobody who's telling off the most important people. Where did their boldness come from? Why were the leaders astonished? Why were they threatened? Peter's not bright. He's not a rhetorical genius. Their authority came from the fact they had been with the resurrected Lord. They had nothing to fear. Belief in the resurrection produces incredible boldness. It also produces gospel growth. Verse 4 is, is a chorus line for the whole book of Acts. You'll see it as you read the book. You'll see something similar to verse 4 pop up all over the place. It actually popped up earlier in chapter 2. Many of those who had heard the word, talking about the word, the proclaimed resurrection of the dead in Jesus, they believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's 2,000 more than in Acts 2. This is the chorus line of the whole book of Acts. It's kind of it's the thing that keeps the book going. You're going to read. If you read the book, you'll find out there are these passages. And they believed, and the number were added to that day. The reality of the resurrection doesn't just give us boldness. It grows the church. It grows the church. Again, we talked about it a little bit last week, so I won't belabor. This is what we do every Sunday. Jesus died on a Friday, but we gather together on a Sunday. The reason why is because what we're celebrating is the resurrection. It's the new life. Sometimes we, exclusive, we kind of exclusively focus on, the Jesus, on Jesus' death to the degree that we fail to remember that His death is actually meaningless without the resurrection. That sin and evil would have won. That if sin and evil, if death had taken the one who gives life, then there is no life for us. How could He give us life if He's dead? Because you see, just like He died our death and we have a share in His death, we have a share in His life, and our resurrection is our fruit of being in union with Him. His life is our life. And that's what every Sunday is about. Every Sunday is actually practice for the resurrection. And the world saw men rejoice and proclaim that this world is not all there is, that there's forgiveness and there's new life, and the church grew when they talked about the resurrection. And Tim Keller makes this point which I think is a helpful point to make. Even if you don't believe in the resurrection, maybe you're here tonight and you don't believe it, wouldn't you want it to be true? Wouldn't you want it to be true that in our incredibly insecure, socially anxious, all-the-time lives, oh my gosh, am I going to get a boyfriend or girlfriend? Am I going to get married? Right? Am I going to make the grades? All the stuff, please, someone think that I'm beautiful. Please, someone love me. I don't have enough money. I don't know if I'm going to get through this. Someone abused me and I feel, I feel wrecked for the rest of my life. I have no friends. Am I ever going to be loved? I'm ashamed, right, about my secret lives. This is all of us. This is who we are. We're all trying to pretend it's not who we are. Everybody in this room, is, this is our story. That's our story. Don't you want the resurrection to be true? It is true. The power of the resurrection comes in our lives when we begin to live in light of the end. The resurrection allows us to let go, to let go of all the things that we seek our life in and seek our identity in and that we hold on to. And that's why one of the questions you have to answer tonight is what is your life in? And what do you seek life? What functions as your cornerstone, the thing upon which you build all your hopes and dreams? Because here's the promise. 
your cornerstone's going to fail. It's not going to work. The pitiful cornerstones that we build can't bear the weight of our lives. So what are your nightmares? They tell you what your cornerstone is. What are your anxieties? Here's another one. What do you judge other people about? It tells you what your hope's in. It's not going to work. But the resurrection holds up. Jesus is a sure cornerstone. He's a cornerstone that defeats death. And what that does is that gives us the capacity to be useful in this life. The resurrection absolutely changes how we live now. Because if all of a sudden your mindset is no longer, how can I get what I want? Right? And instead your mindset is, you know that Jesus has given all that he has to you. Then what you'll do is what Paul talks about in Philippians 2.3. You'll stop doing things out of rivalry and vain conceit. Right? Just crushing everyone out of your need to fulfill your insecurity. And it never seems to work. You'll stop doing things out of rivalry and vain conceit. And instead, in humility, you'll count others as more important than yourself and you'll seek their interests. Because you have everything in Jesus. In Jesus, this, in Jesus, you have everything. You have forgiveness. You have life. You have healing. You have acceptance. You have your Father's smile. And you have your Father's approval. You have the fellowship of God's people. And the resurrected Lord you have everything. When we believe that, it makes us really useful in this world because instead of trying to make ourselves happy, we become people who can just be generous with every aspect of who we are. And lastly, we become, in doing so, we become agents advertising the resurrection. We move into social brokenness instead of running away from it. We move into physical brokenness, even economic brokenness. We move into moral Brokenness in the world, and not with condemning arrogance, but with gracious, firm compassion. And we become agents of the healing of Christ. And we do it, we do it by feeding the hungry, by all the things Jesus talked about clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, healing the sick, loving the lonely. And if you're wondering why you're not doing these things, it's not because those people aren't around you. This campus and this room are full because that's most of our stories. The reason you're not doing it is not because those people aren't around you. It's because your cornerstone says, no, you don't have time for that. You've got to devote yourself to getting what you can get out of this. Because any cornerstone but Jesus demands that you give your life. Jesus is the cornerstone that gives you life. And out of that, life overflows into everyone around you. We become agents of life in this world. That's, that's part of what it means that the church is the body of Christ, that he's the head, and we go into the world, and we welcome international students. Y'all, these are the most lonely people on campus is international students. When we help the at-risk kids, the heart works on the horseshoe. When you love on the lonely, when you continue to love and pursue your roommate that you can't stand. When you go into deep and dark and evil stories in the lives of your friends whether it's evil they've done or evil done to them, then you're the hands and you're the feet of Jesus in this world. You're advertising and bringing in the new life. As we grow to become people that rest in the resurrection of Jesus, some of the world will hate you. But some of the world will be drawn to the wonder of it all. Let's pray.